This is Speaking of Shakespeare, conversations about things Shakespearean. I'm Thomas Dabbs, broadcasting from Aoyama Gakuin University in central Tokyo. If you are joining us on YouTube and wish to listen to this program as a podcast, you may click the link below to your favorite podcast platform. This talk is with William Carroll, Professor Emeritus of English at Boston University. We will begin by taking a close look at Bill's recent book entitled Adapting Macbeth, A Cultural History. This series is funded with support from the Aoyama Gakuin University Institute of the Humanities and also with a generous grant from the Japan Society for the Promotion of Science. Bill, thank you so much for joining us today uh, and uh, spending your, I think this is your Friday evening, and uh, we hope we're not getting into your supper time too much, but thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, I wanted to start off with your book recently out, Adapting Macbeth, A Cultural History. Mm -hmm. And I expected, Bill, when I began this book, what I guess a lot of people would expect, and that is we're going to look at a kind of seminal Shakespearean text and see how that text was adapted through history. And that's interesting enough, but at the very beginning, you show us that this Shakespearean text from the 1623 folio is flawed. And also it's part of a longer, much longer history of this Scottish narrative, I think from the 11th century. And in fact, part of that stream of adaptation is the intervention of the Shakespearean text. It's a a big intervention, but it's part of a much longer history of narrative. And at one point I began thinking, well, yeah, we're getting a lot of Macbeth here, as much Macbeth as we would want. And that's (laughs) great. But there's something else going on here. There is something else being said, maybe something yet unnamed about how a narrative, and in this case, a sort of imperfect narrative, continues through history and through the generations. Well, yeah, I I think it's important to, um, I thought it was important to start with the idea, the fact that Shakespeare's play, which is what normally we would take as the starting point for any history of adaptation, is already 500 years belated in terms of Macbeth's narratives, uh, which began shortly after his death in the most minimal form and uh, became more and more encrusted with um, elements of the story, um, characters added, characters invented, uh, ghosts, invent, uh, ghosts invented, uh, witches invented, yeah. Banquo invented, and so on, until Shakespeare had, uh, in Hollingshead, a, um, a version of the story that had been uh, worked over by many people with many axes to grind and many different ideological approaches for 500 years. And now we're 500, well, 500 years later, yeah. roughly. And yeah. um, uh, that's where we are. His is the, the Everest of that line, you might say, but uh, yeah. not the only one, that's for sure. Well, I wanted you to go into the textual element to begin with here, and that might be boring to a lot of people. It isn't to me. Uh, mm-hmm. In your career, you've done quite a lot of textual editing, and you know quite a lot about it. And uh, this this uh, folio version, just for like my students, there's this one version and there's some problems right. with that version. Right, and I, uh, as I suggest, the uh, the nature of the folio version, which has, let's call them problems as opposed to flaws, mm-hmm. 
yeah. um, is, is in, in many ways the impetus to the history of adaptation since 1606. Yeah. In other words, uh, my argument basically is that uh, adapters since then have uh, often, if not always, uh, seen something uh, that they found problematic or flawed or erroneous or lacking in the folio text, uh, such as um, the issue of fleance at the end. Yeah. And their adaptation is, uh, is a, uh, an attempt to, uh, as it were, uh, heal or cure or uh, uh, repair uh, what they see as something that is um, not perfect. Yeah. Um, and so once you, if you, if you allow that premise, then almost anything goes. And of course, anything has gone uh, with uh, the adaptations. Um, yeah, I know this is very strong in the later 17th century, where the Dryden and the uh, neoclassics, right. uh, neoclassicals, but they felt, okay, we have some good raw material here, but obviously it needs to be cleaned up a bit. Right. And uh, right. the uh, Lear needs a, another ending, and uh, we need to do some other things over here. But you're dating this earlier. I, I dated to Davenant, actually. To William Davenant, to that 16th. Yeah, seen sixty three four. Um, in you know, I I I'd always known about Davenant's adaptation, but when I began working through the various categories that I do in the book, I often found myself going back and and seeing that Davenant had was the first in many ways to do certain things. Um, he was the first to try to produce a symmetry where there is where there isn't any by adding scenes with the Macduffs. He yeah. has Lady Macduff and Lady Macbeth meet and have a conversation where they complain about their husbands. Yeah. Uh, he asks, <laughs> he, he asks in Duncan's ghost. Um, he brings Fleance and Donald Bain back at the end of the play. He was the first to do all those things. Well, there's uh, no Duncan's ghost in the uh, in the first folio. Is no. that right? Yeah. Correct. And I've always wondered about that. You'd, you'd think that Macbeth would be haunted by the ghost of the king that he yeah. murdered, but uh, no, that he personally murdered, but no, yes. he's haunted by the ghost of Banquo. Yes, and you could you could argue that uh, that one reason for that is uh, Banquo is significant in genealogical terms, as his son, as as Fleance and his descendants will become the inheritors of the throne. Yeah, but still, it's a little surprising. It's a little yeah. yeah. Well, I you know, we tend to look at these uh, adaptations and go, oh, well, those people just did not know just how great Shakespeare was. But then we get into our own frame of thinking, our own yeah. framework. And one yeah. thing this book did in terms of my view of Macbeth, I I really am uh I was just trained in the whole idea that there is a kind of um a justification at the end that the the good guys win in the end. And yet, when you know, when you look at this play, <laughs> you're, yeah, who, the, uh, yeah, who are the good? Who guys? are the good guys? Yeah. Exactly, <laughs> it's not so clear. Um, well, that certainly, uh, even from from Davenant on, <clears throat> the so-called royalist interpreta interpretation or the authorized version in which the good guys win, evil is punished. This is the kind of line that. Um, uh, for a couple of hundred years, most productions and most editors and most critics were trying to follow. But even in Davenant, there are some um, 
instabilities in that kind of ideological approach uh, in which it's not so clear uh, exactly what's happened, uh, whether um, uh, the right of lineal succession is upheld or isn't upheld at the end of the play. Mm -hmm. And by uh, the 19th century, there, there clearly are um, very different readings of what's going on in terms of, um, especially the politics of the play. Yeah. Uh, and in the 20th century, uh, it seems it seems quite bifurcated to me. Yeah. There, there are plenty of standard uh, interpretations and productions of Macbeth, the so-called um, normalized version or the, the, the normative version of Macbeth. Yeah. But then there's this uh, incredible strain that comes from the 19, excuse me, the 1920s on, in which uh, the play seems vastly darker and less secure in its optimism and yeah. far more uh, critical um, of uh, Malcolm, uh, of Duncan, um, and, and, um, and reevaluates the witches at the same time. So uh, there, I would say the 20, certainly the 20th century has seen the greatest shift, but I think there's been um, in the attempts to correct the play, a recognition uh, uh, that the play wasn't giving the proper message to begin with all along. Yeah, well, I had to kind of reevaluate my image of Duncan in particular because you brought out, and of course it's there, right there in the text, yes. in the Shakespearean text, that Duncan is not really part of this battle. He's sending people out to do his dirty work. And right. uh, of course, he's being they're being attacked, but in, in uh, and he's a little on the arrogant side, but feeling uh, that you know he can just uh, offer out these little dishes and so forth. I think I was biased by Macbeth's lines before while he's considering into the three things he considers, uh, he can't kill his king, and the king has just been good to him, and he can't kill a kinsman. And he can't kill a house guest. That's right, right. up there with the. Uh, and so I, you have this feeling of uh, you get from Macbeth uh, a feeling about uh, Duncan that is not in the rest of the play. And there is that. Well, yes, but of course, Macbeth says the, the best things about Duncan after he's killed him. <laughs> he's. He, he is uh, he's remembered a lot more fondly than at yes. the beginning. <laughs> and of course, there's that there's the scene where uh, Duncan names Malcolm his successor. Yeah. And the text is so subtle there. Yeah. In which, um, what is Macbeth's reaction to that? Well, we know what it is when he has the aside at the end of that yeah. scene. Uh, I think Kurosawa's film does a great job of that. He just uh, Macbeth and Banquo, uh, Washizu and just look at each other yeah. and you can just see his, his eyebrows twitch and that's it. Yeah. That says everything. That's everything. Yeah. And there's something, there's something really wrong with what, uh, at least in Macbeth's mind with what uh, Duncan is doing. And uh, critics like David Norbrook have noted, have gone back to look at the kind of discourse, the political discourse of the period and suggested that in, in fact, it was true that what Duncan is doing is altering uh, the current mode of succession in medieval Scotland. And, and, and whether he did it in the play or in history is, are two different things, but this is the period 
in Scottish history, which in which it moves from uh, elective to uh, hereditary succession. And yeah. so that sort of is there. Norbrook points out that it's sort of muted compared to what it is in Holland said and other uh, histories, but it's there and it's what upsets uh, Macbeth. He should have been, he should have been the one named yeah. because he is the greatest thing. He is the most, and he's in the parallel family. Duncan yeah. and Macbeth are cousins. And so he, he, he should have been, uh, he should have been named as the next king, but he's not. Yeah. And so, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. so, I, I, you know, again, I was influenced by that royalist uh, way of thinking maybe uh, that carries forth from the 18th century uh, in my, in my own training, in my earlier readings of the of the play, and yet when you look at Tudor history, that uh, that's one of the big things. You know the uh, the idea that here uh, this play is being uh, played for uh, James the first, mm -hmm. and that the, he was preceded by a line of people who failed in providing that son, that male heir, right. and that threw everything on the on the table. You know, are we going to have a, a, a feminine queen, a woman who is queen, a woman who is monarch? Uh, and you had two of them. And then after that, the person who uh, who seceded is the um, is the elected one uh, yes. through some a process. Well, but remember, James um, came to the throne not through uh, the elect through parliament or through election, yeah. but through yes. his claim of lineal descent. Yes, even Going though up and over and down. Yeah, yeah. Even though Henry VIII had excluded the line of Margaret from um, the succession, nevertheless, that was his claim. And of course he took his uh, genealogy. That's why the line of Kings business is so important in yeah. act four. Uh, James took his genealogy. He had hired genealogists to write his, his history back to uh, Fergus or to Adam. Yeah. Um, he made uh, the connection to Wales through yeah. um, uh, Fleance's son who flees to Wales. Yeah. Uh, uh, Fleance, excuse me, Fleance feels to, flees to Wales and his yeah. son is born there. Yeah. Comes back because if you're descended from Welsh royalty, then that gives you the English kingship line as well. Yeah. So there are genealogies that were produced by James's supporters or by his own instigation that yeah. trace him back to the English, to the Scots, to the Welsh, to Adam, to Fergus, anybody you could think of, uh, to the Saxons. Yeah. Anybody you could think of who had a line that might be part of lineal descent. That was James's uh, move. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I misused the word election. I, I was thinking more of consensus where yes. you uh, have there is a among the nobles, there's a general agreement that, OK, this and it happened with Mary. She yeah. basically just went into London and said, I'm queen. And she had the public behind her. And with that mo momentum, you know, mm -hmm. so there was never this um, moment where it was decided by whatever higher council or whatnot. This just uh you you made the strongest argument you could make to be the monarch the next monarch right. and macbeth had that argument uh in any of this narrative history right and it also I, yeah it also helped that james had cecil working behind the scenes and having oh, secret yeah. correspondence <laughs> yeah. and then yeah. and then declaring hey queen elizabeth gestured on her deathbed she nodded she yeah. didn't speak. She nodded that James should be her successor. Well, it seemed obvious, and it seemed obvious to everybody except Catholics in particular. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and the Jesuits in particular. So yeah. uh, any rate, so the history of uh, reading this play as a James centric play. Yeah is is uh, strong and i don't want to deny it at all and yeah. certainly uh it does seem in many ways you know it's a play written in part to appeal to if not to james personally to the current hot interest in london and in england generally to this scottish monarch of theirs uh, yeah. there were he was new there were other uh plays there was an anonymous play anonymous play malcolm king of scots in 1602 there was the uh, play, the, uh, the Tragedy of Gallery in 1604, which was yeah. suppressed after two performances. Yeah, yeah. Because it, seemed, it must have seemed too close to uh, what was obviously fake news that James had, <laughs> had promulgated about how he escaped heroically from the Gallery conspiracy. Yeah. There were lots of Scots in, um, in London at this time. Ben Johnson had recently been imprisoned for mocking uh, Scott's accents in Eastward Ho. Mm. So it's not surprising that this play with uh, uh, James's witchcraft uh, pamphlets and so forth had been republished and so on and so forth. Yeah. Uh, so it's it, it it's very tempting to uh, read the play and to see the play and, and to read out ad adaptations in terms of how it represents James or undermines him or whatever. So yeah. I tried, I had to do that. Of course, you have to do some of that. But I tried to stay yeah. away from uh, from letting that dominate what I was trying to do, because there are plenty of things in that play that aren't related to Duncan at all. Oh, really. at, at the very beginning, you list uh, what uh, what the what it is about the play that captures the uh, imagination over gen from generation to generation. There's several things. Uh, uh, it's a uh, it's about marriage. There's a domestic yeah. element in this play. There's, of course, the kingship that we've been talking about, uh, yeah. ambition, uh, some of those basic uh, deep forms and uh, absolutely existence that Shakespeare's happiest couple, <laughs> as they've been called. They're fine. The, the, yeah. the only happy marriage in Shakespeare, <laughs> until it's not. Until it's not. Until it's not, uh, right. Uh, and really, it's not that the marriage itself breaks down. It's just that they, uh, they are just under uh, pressure from the things that they both have agreed to do. Yes. Uh, well, their their relationship, of course, could have been a whole book in itself. Yeah. And the way yeah. in which they've been represented and the way in which uh, their the dynamic between them works out in the play. I mean, it's been a, a, a subject of fantastic interest for well, since the certainly since the 17th century, uh, in yeah. which um, attempts to explain Lady Macbeth follow the same kind of pattern as other other uh, elements of the play. She seems to be lacking something. Uh, her motivations are not spoken yeah. in the in the play text in the folio her, text. Her uh, motherhood. And so, yeah. And so they're provided. Yeah. They're provided, and I I used. Uh, probably not very accurately, but I used uh, this notion from Foucault that what's happening in these adaptations is that they're an attempt to produce a kind of more docile text. He talks about discipline producing docile bodies. Yeah, from, from think, discipline and punish, that line, yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, and, I, and I think that yeah. something like that goes, in almost all cases, in most of the cases that I look at, uh, uh, the, an adapter is is trying to make sense of something, 
yeah um, and is, is is trying to bring it into a kind of coherence that is understandable for the period of the time the age yeah. of the person involved uh, yeah. now i should also say that there are plenty of a- adapters who are not doing that at all yeah they're taking a story that like uh, the brecht mystery story yeah. uh, brecht said that's a great story and it suits him in a different way to play with that or anti-colonialist adapters yeah. they don't care about all this other stuff what they see is shakespeare the hegemony of shakespeare and they want to undermine that or talk back to it as martha rosett says they want to they want to rewrite that in some way yeah um, and they're not they're not trying to rationalize or normalize the play they're trying to blow it up and that's yeah. another way of, uh, like heiner muller uh, that's another way of, of adapting uh, of adaptation is to blow things up yeah uh, you uh, know that charles merowitz has the collage approach mm-hmm. in which he simply rearranges it, it's i don't know if you've read that play of his uh Marowitz's no. Macbeth. it's at first you think oh this is a, this is a gimmick like dada you know you tear up a poem and put it in a hat but it makes sense as a play he mm-hmm. takes all the lines he doesn't invent lines as i repeat he, he may invent a few lines and then he puts them in different places in the play and has different characters speak them and the result is a a fascinating play uh it's it's hard to make through in a way because you're thinking wait this is act three but here it is in act five if you really know the play it's difficult but if you don't really know the play you don't see what he's doing right <laughs> right, uh, right. So, well, I wanted to I wanted to talk a little bit about your uh, narrative structure in the book, in the sense that you accept right off the bat that you're not going to be able to be comprehensive, and you're not going to be able to give everything its uh, proper due, and that you're not going to be able to follow a linear history. Um, really, at one point it breaks up, and I believe you used the. Um, uh, the Deleuzian notion, uh, the, yeah. the Deleuzian Guattari, the uh, rhizomatic uh, kind of uh, yeah. surfacing of everything, and uh, and you just see these roots all over, and that goes eventually to the globe. But you break it up into areas, politics. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you uh, you see a kind of line of continuity between uh, Brecht and the, the the modernist and and that kind right. of theater, and then a kind of continuity. Uh, along the other line in racialized theater uh, and also uh, other mm-hmm. types. And I, there are, uh, I believe, eight chapters. So yes. I'll let the reader uh, see that structure. But I, I think that, 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 number one, it's very, imp- very impressive uh, that you uh, that you move from the textual elements of this into the uh, critical elements and, and catch these strains. And I think that's a real, um, that you're, you're catching uh, these channels that do mm-hmm. go through history, you know, Things are kind of consistent up to Garrick in the 18th century. You can kind of track that line from uh, Shakespeare's period up through the 18th century, but things split off very quickly, right. don't they? Go into right. Europe and then globally. Yes. Um, well, that thanks. That's a good summary. Um, I would say that um, I'm keenly aware of what I couldn't do in the, in the in the book in terms of. Um, uh, uh, topics uh chinese opera uh other um i mean the limit my own limitations uh were of course linguistic i can't read anything but european languages Mm -hmm. and english um 
And so I had to rely on translations and secondary accounts of lots of things. And that's why uh, certainly one area of the book I think that's lacking is the uh, uh, is the an analysis of Asian and African uh, productions and uh, adaptations and so on. Um, but I did deliberately uh, decide not to try to do just a chronological history, but a kind of tropological history in which I take different topics. So, I mean, I move from politics in the first chapter to music in the eighth chapter or right. uh, the novel, the way in which uh, novels have taken up uh, the play in chapter six, I think it is. Um, and I wanted, I wanted not to do a traditional, you know, historical straight line. Uh, I didn't think it was possible. Uh, and there were too many vertical different ways of going at uh, the play as opposed to simply following a historical line. Uh, the other thing is that there are wonderful um, stage histories of the play, there are three or four of them already that have been um, up through, I don't know, the year 2000 or so. Oh, yeah. Uh, there's the very good stage histories. There's some. Uh, there's a great collection of uh, essays, Shakespeare on screen, Macbeth. I was in that seminar. I have an essay in that yeah. on film versions. And then there are more, many more recent um, accounts of Macbeth on film. And so, in a way, certain things have been done. Like I, I explain in 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 the book that I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on Kurosawa's film, even right. though I think it's probably the greatest adaptation of the play that exists, because um, it's been, yeah. it's received phenomenally great criticism and, and, and scholarship. And so I tried to place it in this line of tropes and themes that I pursued. Um, so as I said, <laughs> this, this may be a, one of the world's great rationalizations, but I was reaching for breadth more than depth in every case. Some and some things I go into in more depth, but in general, I wanted to look at this sweep of of how it had been adapted. Yeah. There's also also, of course, I faced a word count limit from my publisher. <laughs> That's right. So, That's right. Yes. There's, uh, there's only so much you can do. Yeah, we, we've had other guests that have talked about the word count, and, uh, <laughs> and the uh, and the thing is that's that's fair. And you know, it's I don't I do not envy this uh, this this business of in adaptation theory and history of adaptation. You have on one end you have theater uh, productions that you know about through reviews that you've never seen and will never see, and right. then on the other end you have the film like uh, Kurosawa, and uh, you can go through that and you can present your own critical analysis, which I think you did very well in the book uh, with that particular film. Uh, there, there's that. And then there's the other thing that you talk about that I found very engaging, uh, and you've touched on it already, that is moving from culture to culture, right? I was not born Japanese with two Japanese parents to go through Japanese school and that kind of learning. And so I'm not going to come to uh, the, uh, this uh, film uh, with the same kind of awareness of what Kurosawa might be doing. But then again, uh, he's very aware, well, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, very well aware of the fact that he is internationalizing, you know, he's taking an international theme in right. to Japan, but he's also trying to give something back out very clearly. 
uh, in the way he set that film up. And and this, I'm using him as an example. I'm in Tokyo now, but the, you could say this about uh, almost everybody you're talking about in the international scene. Right. Um, and so uh, say with uh, Kurosawa, you have the title with the spider, you know, the um, uh, Kumo, uh, Kumo no Sujo. Um, so the spider and the nest or the web and the yeah. castle, no way you're going to be able to sell that back to the international audience. That would uh, spider web castle yet yeah. in, in uh, that, that really works as a yeah. uh, binding theme, you know, to sort of superimpose onto the play and to the film in his case. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, it's interesting because th there are so many elements in that film that are not related to the folio text, fine. Uh, and yet uh, there's a way in which he's gotten to the heart of a lot of it. Uh, and in some ways uh, has represented what we were discussing earlier, that political kill the king uh, yeah. uh, uh, move that is, well, we associate it with English and Scottish politics of the 17th century, but he associates it with a different kind of parallel culture in the 17th century yeah. and makes it extremely modern, it seems to me. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially because uh, even though you'd say, oh, it's a very traditional kind of film because it's samurai, you know, it's setting in the samurai period. But yeah. I think it's um, a, uh, a very modern take on the play because of the circularity of the film in which it begins in the fog and you see the ruins mm. of the of where the castle was and then it ends there again and it's just this endless cycle like the wheel of the witch mm -hmm. um, that goes on and on and 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 the songs that the witch speaks about uh yeah the the the, the folly of men and their uh the inevitability of what happens again and again and again yeah the spinning the spinning and the spiders yeah. the, that's right out of yeah. that's that's 20 years before Jan Cott and that's right out of uh, that kind of uh, move Shakespeare our contemporary right yes. bring Shakespeare into our own experience uh and that was so influential at that time and I think it still is uh the mm -hmm. that notion uh, that uh, now I, I I push back sometimes because when, you know we, we as teachers sometimes you have to say hey this is a historical word and you just right. have to learn this or you're just not going to get it the joke's not yeah. going to make any sense uh, and so I think you can push the contemporary what making making everything contemporary because Jan Cott is we think maybe 60s more more or less a kind of 60s yeah. uh, critic and that's what that's now half a century ago. Uh, so right, but his influence is it's still it's like, there. It's like in 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 teaching theory courses, uh, for instance, to our graduate students. I mean, I'm retired now, but when we were doing that, when I was doing that, I would teach Foucault, and you realized that uh, Foucault was hardly ever mentioned anymore by anybody writing critical uh, theory, and and yet his ideas, his approach have been subsumed and are just there in a way. And I think Cott's ideas are like that as well. Yeah. Uh, Cott, you know, theater critics always liked Cott vastly more than academic critics. Academic uh -huh. critics took him to task and tut tut, 
you know, uh -huh. that's, you know, that's not right, you know, that sort of approach. But um, this is a case in which production history has, it seems to me, had a greater impact back on academic criticism in some ways uh, through Cott, that his, his approach uh, has simply been uh, in the bloodstream. It's, it's there. And, you know, when you see a production now in which a Malcolm turns into a, a killer, yeah. um, that goes back, that, well, it's not only caught, but let's say he, he, he most, most powerfully dramatized it. Uh, uh, and uh, Ionesco and uh, uh, Heiner Müller and uh, David Gregg, they all look back to Cott in certain ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, I wanted to ask you also about the um, uh, what I see in this book and what I see in your career is uh, something that I find to be rare. And this uh, usually when you're you're dealing with someone who's a there's the textual editor, and there's the person who is geared toward that. I'm not really one of those people. I'm I don't have that kind of discipline. I, I don't think I've never really taken it on. And then there's the the biblio uh, the biblio the bibliographer the bibliophile, uh, mm -hmm. which might be a kind of pejorative term. But I'm I'm a little bit more in that ilk. I, I like that. And then there is a cultural historian who can take all of these details and and shape them. And then there's the literary critic or critical theorist. And you have all of those elements in this book. Uh, well, everything but the bibliophile, maybe. <laughs> well, there is a compendious that you, you have. There's, you know, if you digitize this book, you would have a fairly fairly good bibliography. Yeah. Of, um, now, there are others out there, but still, you bring up some things that... Uh, I haven't seen before. Well, I have to say, uh, if you if you looked at my CV, you, you saw that I started out by publishing on. Actually, I started out by my first published article was on Vladimir Nabokov, but yeah, yeah. my Shakespearean career started out on the comedies, and I had uh, two books on the comedies um, when I uh, was approached about uh, doing an Arden edition, the Arden three series. Uh, I asked for tragedies or measure for measure or something and I say and I was said I was told in a kind way well we see you as doing the early comedies you're a comedy you're a comedy guy you're a comedy yeah. guy I, yeah. I don't feel like a comedy guy <laughs> um and you know once you're sort of pegged that's and in fact as since my dissertation my first book was on love's a critical reading of love's labor's lost you know, 25 years later, or however long it was, uh, when the new Cambridge Shakespeare needed someone to take over the edition of Love's Labor's Lost that would foundered in their series, uh, they asked me because I'd done a book on it 25 years before, and I hadn't yeah. really even looked at the play since then. So yeah, yeah. so I so I saw I was seen as a comedy guy, um, but I can tell you how this whole project began began on a bus ride in 1994 at the Shakespeare Association meetings in Albuquerque. We were going to Santa Fe and I was sitting next uh, to um, Karen Henry, who was the executive editor of Bedford Books. And two, two volumes of that had come out uh, to that point, Taming of the Shrew and, and uh, Russ, uh, uh, Russ McDonald's 
reader. And Karen said, Bill, how would you like to do a Bedford, a Bedford edition? I said, well, that sounds interesting. What'd you have in mind? And she said, as you like it. And I said, no, <laughs> no. So I did, you know, this, I did Macbeth. You did Macbeth, yes. Yeah. And that came out in 1999. And that's- you, you were also working on Fat King Ling. Ling. Yeah. That's where I kind of got on board. You see, that's more right. in my formative. Uh, so that's that's true, but I done I was almost done with that. Yeah. When she asked me to do this Bedford uh -huh. thing, and so I I said I want to do something different, and so that and so I picked that up, and since then I have had many other things I've done, but I've been interested in this play for a long time. Yes, you. Uh, yeah, this isn't something that sprung up in the past uh, no. even five or ten years. This is something that. Uh, uh, well, let's let's talk about comedy for a period. I'm finding comedy to be uh, a lot more difficult year after sure. year. The more I learn about any given comedy that I teach or that I try to write about, uh, I'm just going, I, I really kind of wish this were not a comedy. I wish it right. was because comedy is hard. It really is hard. Right. Tragedy. Tragedy is easy. Comedy is hard. Um, yeah, that that I mean, the, old adage, isn't it? Yes, the, uh, the the hard, the worst thing is when you're teaching an undergraduate class some of the comedies and you have to explain a joke. I mean, it just that's when you have to show them a video of a great production. That's um, it. Nothing kills a joke a like explaining it. Yeah. yeah. For example, Love Slavery is Lost. I mean, I started on that play because I couldn't figure it out, you know, in graduate school. And so I thought, well, okay. And I didn't think the criticism on it was very interesting at the time. So I, you know, I said, I'll work on that. And I had not seen a uh, production of that play until after I'd finished my dissertation, at which point I realized it's terrific on the stage. Uh -huh. A great production is fantastically funny mm -hmm. on the stage. A bad production is not so much fun. But uh, I've seen some great productions, and um, yes. that's when I realized even even a play like Two Gentlemen of Verona, which is often called uh, Shakespeare's worst play, has a lot of interest on the stage, yeah. far more interest than academic critics have sort of made it made it out to have. Yeah. Um, so I agree with you. I think comedy is difficult and hard, but uh, I also I, the one thing I've really not written on was the history plays. Yeah. Don't, don't ask me why. I'm not sure. I, am. I mean, it just <laughs> you weren't guided in that direction by whatever forces are out there. I think I I think I'm coming to it, uh, coming yeah. to them. Uh, you, you were guided into the direction of uh, Middleton, and I yes. wanted to spend a little bit of time on Middleton. How uh, you uh, crossed over from Shakespeare to Middleton, and why Middleton? Right. Well, there there. <laughs> that's another one of those um, examples of serendipity in which I was at a, a conference at the um, Clemen Library, Library in uh, Munich and uh, I don't know, sometime in 19, early 1990s. Mm -hmm. And uh, Brian Gibbons was there and mm -hmm. he was then the sole general editor of the New Mermaids series. So yeah. he said, he, yeah. you know, we, we'd given papers and met each other and so forth. So he said, you know, we're looking for some new editors. You have any interest in you know, doing a play. I'd never edited anything at that point. Uh -huh. And I said, well, uh, sure. Uh, 
uh, what do you got? And so he mentioned a couple of plays um, and I settled on Women Beware Women because I had liked it in, when I read it in graduate school. And I thought it, it's, it's an it's a extremely interesting play. Um, so that's how I got started on that. And then once that happened a few years later, well, some, several years later, uh, I was invited to become uh, uh, one of the general editors of the series myself. Yeah, along with Tiffany Stern and then and Brian yeah. for a while. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, Tiffany and I are stepping down at the end of 2022, so that they can have some new blood and new developments and new lines. Uh, that's the that new series. mermaid. That's the yeah yeah new mermaid series. Well, that's the end of an era. Uh, but I'm I'm certain that that uh, whoever takes over will be very good. That's a a very strong. Um, it's, it, it has its own history now. It de um, it definitely it goes way back. It, it goes, goes way, way back. back. And but I'd I'd have to say Brian was, you know, that he was the generational leader uh, yeah. for a long time of that yeah. series. And Tiffany Tiffany and I came in, sort of take the load off him. And also it was a period when we were, at that time, expanding a little bit. Now not so much. I think. Uh, I think Tiffany is doing some work with Arden. Uh, she's she's the, one of the general editors of the Arden Four. So yeah, she's, and she's got her I looked plate at, full. You know, how can you? Well, I, we spoke with I spoke with her about a year ago on this series, and uh, and when I, we finished, I'm thinking, how does she do all of this? How, how can she? Yeah, she possibly? is. She's a phenomenon, I have to say, yeah. she, I, and I and still her. be just this happy, nice person. She <laughs> is. That, yeah, she's very generous too. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. So yes. we were like, we were yin and yang in many ways different but we work great uh yeah. we work well together yeah. yeah yeah well there's a lot of good stuff and this arden series that uh your book is part of is uh uh i'm very impressed i'm uh with the um uh with the series the um the uh um well this is a little bit inside but i have a couple of things that were stuck in the mud over the uh corona or the covid period just yeah. stuck in the mud and you go, well, my goodness, guys, uh, you know, <laughs> by the time this thing comes out, <laughs> you know, it's not even going to be pertinent anymore. Uh, yeah. and, uh, that has not happened in, I don't think that's happened here. I've seen a steady flow and things that kept the, you know, kept the ship going, you know, down river or whatever uh, right. metaphor you want to use. Uh, and I'm very impressed with that. That uh, signals an extremely dedicated and good editorial staff that was able to adapt to a very difficult time. Yes. Well, all credit to Margaret Bartley yeah. for steering yeah. that ship. Uh, she's yeah. quite extraordinary. Yeah. And, and Mark, Dudgeon, Mark Dudgeon now does the, uh, the critical side of things. So she does the editorial. She, she supervises the Arden Four and other, other projects. Yeah. But she, she, she was the one who guided uh, uh, Arden through the last ten or fifteen years, and is fantastic. So, yeah, I've been lucky. I had wonderful mentors as as I learned how to edit, from yeah. Brian to Richard Proudfoot, uh, in particular at Arden. Yeah, there's no manual out there, is there? That's one no. of the reasons I've shied away because no, you just make your mistakes and hope someone <laughs> points them out to you. <laughs> 
uh, I go to, and I realize this uh, it, it, it was later than it should have been. Uh, I usually have over time. I've gone to uh, for Hamlet, for instance. Let's go back to Harold Jenkins, right? And I'm, right. I'm thinking up until this year, this publication of Harold Jenkins, I'm going to get everything, almost everything I need, right? Mm. And then after that, I find, well, you know, there are a couple of things that were missed in there. Yes. Uh, that, uh, even Jenkins missed, and he didn't miss much uh, that I've been able to see. But uh, you, that's where you go. You go to that textual uh, edition. To, mm. it's, it's reliable uh, with things that are so spread out all over everywhere, all these publications and so forth. And, and yet, it, it, uh, it, it's still very difficult to get everything in. Um, yeah. Well, Jenkins, uh, well, of course, the current Amlet in Arden 3 is two volumes, so. Yes, yes. <laughs> but uh, Jenkins, Jenkins Arden 2 is quite a, quite a uh, monumental achievement. It is, it is monumental. Uh, I've, uh, I uh, have given away most of my, I'm trying to downsize my library, which is not yeah. being very successful. Yeah. And so I, I, I kept only a few Arden 2s, uh, and Jenkins is certainly uh, one of them. But of course, yeah. he had his own way of seeing the play and of seeing the the the, the, the relation among the three texts, and um, it's sometimes well. For instance, uh, in the Rogan Peasant Slave soliloquy, he he doesn't permit Hamlet to say or to shout, "Oh, vengeance!" Uh huh. Uh huh. He he dismisses that line. He says that's just an actor's interpolation. Uh -huh. Well. Well, yeah. So, uh, wasn't Shakespeare an actor there? Well, you know, I mean, um, so uh, you know, there there are different ways still, and I think that the Arden three version with Anne Thompson and uh, uh, is quite good. And well, has taken a, it, taken a few things and made us look at them in slightly different ways. Yeah, this brings up something that I wanted to ask you about. Also, is that the. Uh, um, it, it involves the fact that we're we're kind of finding out, and I'm not sure how reliable these um, uh, new digital methods are in in scanning and and being able oh. to identify signatures and so forth. And that's a whole different thing. But right. there is a, a much more open mindedness toward the notion of Shakespeare collaborating on plays that we had heretofore given him primary authorship. Mm -hmm. And you mm -hmm. have experience working with one of the great collaborators, Middle, uh, Middleton. And, yeah. uh, and it does make sense that everybody else seemed to do it. And certainly Shakespeare right. did too. It's a matter of where and to what extent. Yes. Um, there's no question that Shakespeare, uh, collaborated with various people uh, from the beginning to the end of his career with Fletcher at the end, uh, maybe uh, with Nash at the beginning with Titus mm -hmm. Andronicus. Um, and mm -hmm. somewhere in there, you know, Middleton was, uh, if uh, Shakespeare's, you might say, successor as the chief playwright of the King's Men and had uh, his his hand is visible in some of the plays, and particularly in Macbeth, because mm -hmm. as as you know, the two songs that the witches sing uh, are uh, taken from uh, Middleton's play, The Witch, or or at least we can say that in Middleton's play, The Witch, the full texts of those songs are present. So it's likely uh, that the version that we have in the folio is 
has Middleton's, if not his thumbprint, his pinky yeah. into the play. That's I don't pinky. think he, yeah. I don't, I don't think he, uh, Middleton revised the play nearly as much as, for example, Gary Taylor thinks, yeah. but there's no doubt that there was some influence uh, and more than influence, you might say, in terms of actually producing uh, uh, some text that wasn't in the original, uh, that wasn't in whatever version of the manuscript reached uh, uh, the folio editors. And the original, uh, if there was an original manuscript, there must have been multiple, you know, palimpsestic versions of the, yeah, uh, of the, of the text. Yes. Uh, uh, I think we have, yeah, yeah. so uh, that's that's another element of the book that I was conscious of. I was using you have to you have to take the first folio text since that's the only that's the earliest original text of the play. Yeah, but you don't you shouldn't fetishize it as the only Shakespearean the only way in which Shakespeare is present. And on the other hand, you can't reconstruct what happened in 1605-6, what it, what it was like exactly. Yeah. Uh, thing, you know, think, things are just not very clear, I would say, about this play, which is another reason why it lends itself to uh, adaptation. Yeah, that's getting back to Macbeth, yes, because we would see if we had the earlier version or versions uh, far more. And that's probably one reason why Macbeth is up there with mm -hmm. the adaptable plays. You know, you made yeah. a list and right. uh, of course, Hamlet, but then Hamlet, we do have that, uh, those, those three early editions do give you a lot more to work with in terms of right. what's even not there, right? Right. So, uh, right? Several thousand lines more. That's, thousand lines. That's, uh, that's the thing about Macbeth. I mean, it is, it is relatively short. It's not the shortest play. Yeah. It's not the, you know, uh, uh, other, other tragedies are, are shorter. And um, there's, of course, the, um, the argument that some of the uh, texts that we have were uh, written, uh, uh, were, were versions that were meant to be uh, read and, and or cut down. Yeah. Uh, Lucas Earns sort of argument about yeah. reading Shakespeare and others yeah. are um, versions that were meant to be played. Yes. Uh, uh, and they're therefore they're shorter and more compact and uh, like uh, the first quarter of Hamlet maybe was a playing version. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it, it makes sense that Macbeth, the text we have, which is relatively short compared much shorter than Hamlet or Richard the yeah. third. Suspiciously is, short. Well, everything else is shorter than Hamlet or Richard III, too. Yeah, but, and, yeah, yeah. So it's not—it's—it's it's not clear. Maybe there was a longer uh, Shakespearean version uh, that was cut down. Maybe there never was. Maybe this is it. Well, let's see. With Hamlet, it's the uh, first quarto short, second very big, and the folio smaller but big. Yeah, uh, and, plus or minus three hundred lines. They're they're up around yeah. thirty six hundred lines. Yeah, and, and the first and, quarto is about 1,700, 1,600, something like well, that. Well, and I'm sure the editors there were under the same pressure that you were talking about with the Arden series. You know that we're oh, we're yeah. trying to get everything into one book here, guys. Uh, let's right. see what we, yeah, we have to, get, or we have to get everything into one playable version in an hour and twenty minutes in the town yeah. square in Stratford. So what are we gonna, yeah. you know, what are we gonna put on? Yeah, we're gonna yes. put on the four hours of Richard the Third. 
No, yes. let's just do the, you know, let's do the wooing of Lady Anne and, you know, the murder and and the fight with um, uh, with Richmond at the end. That's enough. That's an hour and a half. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. When you put these things on the stage and you try to keep them uh, in, in the public eye, uh, there are a lot of practical reasons to to cut down on on text. Uh, I spoke with uh, Emma Smith and Tiffany about uh, these yeah. things where mm-hmm. you know, if, if, if it's these jokes and comedies where you go, OK, guys, let's just don't try to do this. And you, you see Branagh doing it in his film version of Much Ado, uh, yes. cutting out some of the banter there uh, that to us might even seem, even if we understand it, a little tiresome. They, they go on a little too long sometimes mm-hmm. with the jokes, but I'm sure at the time they, they played very well. You know, they, yeah. they were being referring to various people you knew about or whatnot. Well, it, yeah, it, but it brings up the whole question of, and again, this is part of the theory of adaptation, is that every performance, every production of any play has cut or added text or has added interpretive moves that contradict or undermine or support the text in ways that are constantly changing. And, um, you know, I, I think I point out in the, um, in the book that I have never seen any account, one account in 1821 by J.C. Cross's parody of, of the play in which uh, uh, Edward the Con- uh, Edward the, Conf- the, the Edward the Confessor the scene confessor, yeah. takes place, in which the guy comes out and says, uh, the doctor comes out and says, you know, the, in the, the healing grace and the benediction, and he cures the sick. I've that's never I don't I've never seen a record of a performance of that. That's just cut because yeah. who was Edward for a modern audience? Who was Edward? Who was Edward the Confessor? Right. <laughs> you know. Uh, uh, or yeah. uh, Gary it, Gary Taylor did something on. Am I did I get that? Yes. No, he he argues that um, he rewrote the scene in his Middleton okay. edition. Yeah. So that uh, he 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 imagines how the scene he thinks originally uh, existed, in which Edward did come in, but Middleton changed it all because it was too Catholic. Uh-huh. Uh huh. You know, I, I don't really accept that argument. Um, you know, uh, we have what we have. Yeah. Uh, and I, I don't really buy uh, the argument that uh, Shakespeare was cool with uh, Catholic practice and uh, Middleton wasn't because Queen Elizabeth had done it. Queen Elizabeth had done the touching of the of the uh, of the sick, healing the sick through the through the uh, royal touch. Yeah. And had perfected the ceremony as a Protestant ceremony that used all kinds of elements of the Virgin of the worship, the adoration of the Virgin Mary, yeah. but had, as it were, Protestantized it <laughs> in, yes. in her own way. And that became a big deal when James became king because he didn't believe in it. He was skeptical. Yeah. Um, his advisor said, you ought to do this because it proves that you're really the English king because only the English kings have this power, not the Scottish kings. Yeah. And so eventually he came around and he started, you know, he, he would touch people, but he he obviously was skeptical. So this yeah. was sort of in the air in 1605, six, uh, yeah. along with the witchcraft trials and um, James presiding over witchcraft trials at the period. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. On that subject of, uh, 
uh, re religion and uh, I, that's where I don't think you can uh, make things contemporary. I think a modern yeah. day practicing someone in a Roman Catholic tradition, uh, as opposed to someone who's a Presbyterian or a Methodist in the regular old Protestant church or whatnot, this is hugely different I, in my right. reading in the 16th, early 17th century. Yes. Uh, that, uh, and I'm, I'm seeing more, more of this in my own research, where you see Prote Protestant writers actually doing things that we would now see to be more or, or less Catholic practice. Sure. You sure. know, kind of making up their own book of hours and making up their own kind of mm -hmm. thing, but but keeping the Pope out of it, you know, and and uh, right. you know, and then there are other guys who just want to go and just be entrepreneurs and just stand up and, uh, you know, do anything they want to do. So, uh, well, it was it was it was a deep. I mean, it's true, and you know, just you know, I, as I in, in the chapter in which I talk about Fleance, who is brought back in so many versions when he's not actually in the play. Um, there is a kind of underlying uh, uh, problem with that because Fleance actually goes off to, uh, he goes to Wales and he dies and he never comes back. Uh, his son comes back nine generations, uh, five generations later. Yeah. Um, yeah. But who in any audience from 1900 on uh, or 1800 on is going to know anything about Fleance? And what happened to him in Wales? They're not going to know about that, yeah. and so I can see why um, uh, adapters have brought him back. I don't. Yeah. I think I think it's a mistake. I think the play is open ended in a way that that forecloses. It brings. I, I use the term open frame, close frame play, yeah. Yeah. bringing bringing Fleance back or uh, 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 or Donald Bain, but most Donald of Fleance. Is a way of closing the frame of the play yeah. and fulfilling the last prophecy, but the prophecy wasn't that Fleance would become king, but that his that those who descended from him would become king. It, At any rate, I see the same problem with the religious issues that you've just pointed out. Yeah, no one in a contemporary world is is going to uh, appreciate um, the subtleties of whether or not hanging a royal coin around and touching someone is a particularly catholic or protestant or the the problems to, james was protestant but his wife was catholic you know and all of that that for, that's the academic side of the how high the altar should be or what you should wear while you're <laughs> exactly. preaching all of those things these guys yes. would, i mean they just would argue yeah. for hours they wouldn't uh not unrelenting uh, well, back to Fleance, I, I, I was just, I just had a little bit of a, you know, the Joel Cohen production, the, the uh, recent one, I think yes. Fleance is at the end, there's a suggestion that there, that was Fleance, right? At the end? Yes. It's right. Back. Okay. I thought that was a very good way to handle it. Uh, you, He's coming back, but you don't yeah. actually see him get back. Yeah. You see yeah. all the crows, you know, fly up into the yeah. sky. Um but he's bringing him back. <laughs> yeah. And the crows do not suggest that there has been a, uh, you know, that, uh, um, you know, everything's uh, peaceful and good again. No, they're not but a good things, sign. It's not a good not, sign. It's not a good sign. <laughs> or the ravens. I, I guess the they're ravens, not crows. Not uh, a good sign. <laughs> and uh, I, I love that effect. I showed it to a class. And when they, they first flew over, my students just, you know, they ducked. Hitch, <laughs> you know? Hitchcock, yeah. right. Yeah. Well, well, you know, uh, it's a shame that that film came out after I had turned in the manuscript. 
because I would have uh, loved that's, it. Isn't that a thing? You know, you yeah. You the, part of the stream, you have to you have to get off off the boat at some point, and <laughs> you then stop. Right? You know, uh, and it's already in press, and then this big movie comes out. But that's always going to be the case. Yeah, something big right. is going to happen, and you're spread out across the globe. So, you know, as we're talking now, somebody's doing Macbeth. Oh, yeah. Some, the, somewhere. Many, many people are doing Macbeth somewhere. Well, I was fortunate that just uh, before I was turning in the manuscript, Amazon Prime put up that Indian film, Joji, uh, which mm. is the first pandemic version, uh, only pan full film version I know that alludes to the pandemic that is a version mm -hmm. of an adaptation of Macbeth. I mean, it's got a little King Lear in it as well, but mm -hmm. it's basically a Macbeth film. And I was just able to get that in. Yes. Uh, and it's in a very interesting film. And they they use Matt, you know, the masks we wore for, co we still wear for COVID. Oh, yeah. Uh, as a metaphor uh, for the hiddenness of, you know, the motives of the faces and so on. It's quite, yes. quite an interesting film. I don't know if it's still on Amazon, but if you get a chance to see it, uh, I haven't seen it yet. I would love to. That's on on my list. Uh, that this pandemic thing also uh, to go back to the Ancot business. Yeah. I always in, in teaching Romeo and Juliet the text. I always thought this is the most ridiculous ending in the world. That this uh, uh, junior friar or whatnot gets locked up in a plague house, and that's why the letter doesn't get there. And right. Zeffirelli handled that much better. You know, you just pass on the road, and it's just a uh, you just don't see each other, right? And uh, right. and this uh, pandemic. <laughs> It's, now that ending makes perfect sense. And of course, the right. plague came out so close to a, an outbreak of plague and so forth that uh, it just it's vindicated the uh, sort of a earlier version. Right. Actually, I think the Lerman, the Boz Lerman film does that even better because it's it's a UPS truck. Well, maybe it's a FedEx. It's right it's a FedEx. <laughs> yeah, and Romeo's out being Romeo, and he just doesn't see the uh, right. The baggage. delivery misses him because <laughs> we. <laughs> Which, that's right. That's happened to all of us. We yes, haven't. exactly. You're not at home when the uh, package it was gets stolen there. from his porch. Actually, stolen from his porch. <laughs> <laughs> that really is funny. Um, well, that that that's just great. Uh, I think that we are getting close to. Uh, the we've covered what I wanted to cover, and mm -hmm. we could talk about Macbeth forever. I would, yes, you know, I, I it's just and and what Macbeth is, what Macbeth represents, and it is something that I think is more, is far more accessible than some than the other tragedies. I think it's the it's a, one of those portals to Shakespeare yeah. that if you started somebody on Shakespeare tragedy. You, the go-to is Macbeth. It's certainly in Hamlet or, or Lear. Uh, well, you, could, you, you know, could... I think I agree with you, but uh, I've had very different um, successes and failures with teaching undergraduates, particularly yeah. any of those four plays. I mean, some years ago, I would have said, well, Othello is the least accessible because in a way the language is so difficult. I yeah. think it's a difficult play, but now with its racial politics and the problems, uh, it's people really respond to it. Yeah, uh, I I would think actually King Lear might be the most difficult play for a young person to take in. I remember reading it when I was twenty years old in college, 
And I did, I, isn't, I didn't get it. I didn't and, either. I didn't either. <laughs> I just, I said, there's some really good poetry in here. Some yeah. good nature stuff, but in a production, I saw a production at Stratford-upon-Avon years ago, and it was very well done. And I would just, please end this. <laughs> and get to the pub and not have to think about this anymore. Uh, it was so long, and it was, and it's Lear. Yeah. Uh, and I just wasn't in that kind of mood that right. day. But once you pass 50, it all makes sense. It all makes sense. <laughs> As yes. you're zooming towards Lear's age, you know, yeah. well, it I, really makes sense. I tell my students that Hamlet is going out, you know, with the pandemic, I, I just, it's just too much. Uh, it's just too close. Uh, yeah. All of this business of being worm food and all, I just don't want to think about that. We're going to go to comedies. I know there are dark <laughs> spots in the comedies too, but. Uh, uh, well, yes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they so, certainly are. But it's it's just not worm food all the way through. No. And uh, as as we are in, in Hamlet. Othe Othello also, I, I think there's a competition depending on where you are uh, in terms of, because jealousy is so eternal. It yeah. never goes, and and the scaling of jealousy in that play, that's another subject. Uh, but I and guess Macbeth... And it's yeah. domestic, a domestic tragedy as well. Yeah, and it is. Yeah. It surely is. But, uh, but you're, you know, you're right about Macbeth because uh, in terms of its, you might say, its approachability, its accessibility, um, you don't have to believe in ghosts or witches or anything to, to, to get into that play. Yeah. And the characters are immediately, um, they're, not, they're never transparent, but they're immediately visible in a way that takes, uh, they're not opaque in the way that say Othello, uh, Othello himself is. Right. Um, and, and, and you can get at them. There, there are things missing, there are things, there are problems, there are things you don't understand. Why is Lady Macbeth doing this? Surely it's not because she's a hysterical woman as you know, many versions have her. Yeah. Uh, but you can, you can get at something quite quickly in that play. And it's not just because it's short, it's just somehow more available, even though some of the lines are completely opaque and difficult. If you really look at some of the lines in it, they're yeah. really strange. They the really crow, are. They the crow really makes are. wing to the rookie wood. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, uh, multitudinous seas and carnadine. There's some really amazing lines in it that you cannot, that you can't just pick up as you're listening if you're first time uh, reader of the play or, or watching it. But there is something elemental. I think you used that phrase a long time, an hour ago, something elemental yeah. about the play uh, yeah. on in many different categories yeah. of, 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 of fear, guilt, ambition, uh, violence, love, yeah. just all kinds of things that are just right there uh, yeah. and and uh, and, and if, that young people understand too uh oh, absolutely what what price you have to pay to get what you want yeah. uh and they understand that uh i do think it's i do think that uh, macbeth is um one of the darkest plays of shakespeare yeah. in terms of being oh, yeah. under the sur under the violent surface yeah even more scary and violent than you might think. I think yeah. it's really tapped into something. And that's one reason why it's been so 
uh, well, popular is, I guess, the word uh, since yeah. since uh, since the 17th century. Well, I, I did have one short story I wanted to impart to yeah. you about the Polanski version that was so influential in my career. You know, yeah. you just don't get darker. Uh, the the no, witches so dark. just don't get uh, scarier than uh, Polanski. And uh, I I did venture to show this to a uh, or a section of it to a class. And afterwards, we had two young men just said, uh, you know, Mr. Dabbs, that, that was just too much. Mm. They, they were they were absolutely. And I'm going, I'm, I don't think at that time, there was a lot of talk about trigger warnings and that sort yeah, of thing. Yeah. And I would told my class, so listen, this is Shakespeare. It's all the trigger is pulled. I mean, it's, it's right. dark. it gets dark. It gets bad. If that's bothersome, I don't know what I can do. But Polanski is a little bit too much. Um, well, well, I, I don't know what you think about the Rupert Gould witches. I have a picture in the book of, of that. Yes. Of oh, those are scary. Those are very scary. I I, uh, yes. I did a Shakespeare on film course in which we uh, had this film and nobody in the class knew anything about it. And I had five um, senior citizen auditors, a special program at BU. So I had a bunch of undergraduates and then five seniors. And they all came back the, ne the day after we were to see it. And they said, what was that it was it was a slasher film it was you know like when the the witch goes down and pulls out the heart of the beating heart you know yeah, they, they, yeah. they said i i had to look away and you know you don't usually say that about a shakespeare play i had to look away uh yeah. because it was so violent yeah um, yeah and, that's that competes there with uh, polanski and because I, there there are supposedly nurses or nuns who are supposed to heal you to, to yeah. help you it makes them even nastier even nastier so, uh and all i think maybe with me it's the whole thing i'm old enough to remember the whole manson uh oh, yeah. thing, you know absolutely and it sort of superimposes on my and it was uh a, i was very young a formative period and these two things uh thrown together uh, we're just so dark, you know, you, you remember, and Absolutely. I do too, the whole Manson thing was, that was just like the end of um, the innocence in some ways, you know, the whole. Um, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the film that he made shortly thereafter. That's uh, it. With those um, images. Uh, yeah, and the, dragging, the images. even just dragging, remember the bear, he drags a dead yeah. bear through yeah. the, uh, that has been uh, in the bear baiting scene. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's There's pretty a, scary. It's very scary, and the, the slaughter of the innocents. I, I can't. Well, now you know. we're all going to have nightmares. Then after we're all going to have <laughs> nightmares now. This. But I, I, uh, I'm trying to let you uh, go off and uh, have some supper here. This is your, okay. uh, this is your uh, evening, and your Friday evening. It and, is. And here, it here is. you are. This is just a sign to our audience of just how nerdy we are uh, <laughs> on a Friday evening when you should be out celebrating. And I'm on Saturday morning, uh, so. Uh, but the sacrifices we have to make to uh, oh, well, for this fun. Shakespeare thing. It's fun. I love talking about Shakespeare. And Macbeth, uh, so. If I could, if I could ask you to stay just a moment after we sure. finish recording, uh, Bill, it's been a wonderful experience. I'm so happy to meet you. And yes, uh, thank you. Uh, this is our first meeting and uh, just uh, my best to you as we enter into the holiday season. And you too. And you uh, too. Thank you very much for having me.